Remember, don't get stuck with another sticker company. Stick with StickerYeti.com for all of your sticker needs and much, much more. Sticker Yeti is the place for all of your needs when it comes to stickers. Check them out today. Welcome to the Keeping the Nostalgia Alive show. Uh, this is going to be our music edition. You can listen to all of our programs at Keeping the Nostalgia Alive. That's all one word, keepingthenostalgialive.podbean.com. And also go to YouTube and check out our YouTube channel. This uh, uh, interview is going to be on our YouTube channel. Just uh, search Keeping the Nostalgia Live show and you'll find us. As you can see with us is Nick Feldman from Wang Chung. Nick, thank you so much for taking some time out of your busy schedule to uh, help keep the nostalgia alive and talk about your music career. Yes, my pleasure. Good to be here. I like the backdrop you've got there. Uh, yeah, I've got uh, but the little guy behind me there. That's Coach Bob Knight. He's a... Uh, a pretty famous basketball coach here in the United States. And then you can see a couple CDs I got back there framed. Those were from Bang Tango. So, but uh, most of my stuff is um, uh, basketball related, but I've kind of uh, branched out to music and entertainment, stuff like that. Just, you know, I think it's based upon me wanting to know more about what I was into when I was a kid, if that makes sense. Yeah. No, I understand that. It's so interesting because I've been watching, uh, I, I'm not, I like basketball, but I don't pretend to know very much about it. So, but I've been watching The Last Dance, you know, by uh, which is on Netflix and right, it's Michael kind of education and really good show. I totally recommend it. So yeah. I'm almost through it, but it's uh, pretty fascinating stuff. Yes, it is. But but I love doing my um, uh, I love doing my um, uh, entertainment shows though and it's a lot of like you know I like to keep nostalgia like from when I was a kid and, and a lot of this stuff is questions that that I want to know but people uh, enjoy the interviews um tell us a little bit about where you were born and raised and your family and what was the first instrument that you actually picked up and started playing or were interested in playing uh, well I was born in London uh, so um, my uh, my kind of I always loved music. I mean, the Beatles were kind of what really got me going. You know, I remember sitting next door with my uh, at my friend's house and uh, watching the Beatles' first appearance on TV over here in the UK. Uh, and you know, their hair appeared to be very long. I mean, that it actually by these standards, today's standards, is not very long. But and I remember that my dad's, uh, my friend's dad you know, being completely outraged at the, how, how they looked, you know. Uh, and it was sort of completely riveting and exciting to watch this thing called the Beatles. And, and they clearly being, seemed to be upsetting people who it seemed to me to be pretty cool to upset. So, so that, was, uh, that was the kind of beginning of my obsession with, uh, with the popular music. Uh, and then uh, I followed the Beatles through and absolutely loved them. Um, my first... Uh, I was really kind of rebellious. My, my brother and sister were, and, and myself were offered piano lessons by my parents. And of course, me being the sort of twit that I am, I refused to have them and the other two took them. And, but of course, it's funny how life goes. You know, I uh, was the one who went into music properly and, and they didn't. You know, but my, my first proper instrument was, I say proper instrument, it was this terrible, really cheap acoustic guitar I got when I was about 15. Uh, and I never learned how to play it. It just, it, it sort of defied tuning. 
this guitar is really, really bad. But I used to mess around on it. And then I remember one day when I was maybe about 17, I thought, I suddenly realized maybe you can sort of, maybe you can play a little bit, you know. And then I started to jam with a friend of mine uh, who was, I was at school with, a guy called Pete. And he actually knew how to play guitar and knew a few chords and stuff. So he taught me some basic stuff. And then we used to have these really creative, kind of extemporaneous jams together. Uh, quite sort of out there, quite left field stuff, you know, and really exploratory. Uh, and then, uh, then we got a band together with John, well, John Moss from Culture Club was, uh, we went to the same school. He lived over the road from me. And um, so he became our drummer. And so it was me on guitar, my friend on guitar, John on drums, and we had various bass players. And we just used to jam and stuff, and I was writing, starting to write songs. And that's how it all started, you know. It was really creative, very free and creative and exploratory and experimental. It was, it was really good. Did you, being a little bit of rebellious and because your dad didn't like the Beatles, but did you really enjoy the music? Oh no, I love the music. I, I, it was thrilling to me, absolutely thrilling. It wasn't my dad; it was my friend's dad. Oh, okay, sorry. My, my dad, my parents actually were reason were pretty sort of uh, accepting of it, you know, and they were down with what was going on. Um, obviously, not to my intense levels, but uh, they were pretty receptive. No, no I love the music and, and still do. I think the Beatles are just. How far do you live from where you were born and raised, where you're at today? Oh, today I live in Wimbledon, so that's close to the, where the tennis gets, we used to be played. <laughs> not, not this year. Um, but, uh, but I was brought up in sort of northwest London. I'm now in southwest London. Um, uh, I lived in a place called Camden for a long time, Camden Town, uh, which my son lives there at the moment. Um, that's very, a lot of small venues and very, very creative area of, of, for music, for, for rock music, for all different types of stuff. So, but uh, no, I, I really like it out here because in Wimbledon, to me, being a sort of urban type guy, you know, living out here in Wimbledon feels like the country, <laughs> even though it isn't. What has, what's going on in the world today with the, um, uh, the pandemic? What, what does that do to a musician? What does, uh, I mean, how do you collaborate with other people? Is it through Zoom like we're doing today? Or uh, what has it done to, um, uh, to a musician's lifestyle? Well, I mean, everyone's different. Uh, it's, you know, there's, because you're more sort of housebound, I suppose, uh, it's, and you've maybe got more time to do things that you might not normally have the time to do. So I've had a, that bit more time to write, you know, and sit at home and, and write. So I've been doing a lot of that. Uh, Jack and I have collaborated, Jack from Wang Chung, have, we've collaborated over, thank God for the internet, because we can <laughs> well, do things like Zoom or we can send things over the internet to each other, bits of music and stuff. So we've uh, created various things together over the internet. Uh, we've done a few live virtual shows and things like that. So, yeah, it's obviously not the same as going out and playing to a live audience. That, that, there's a real visceral thrill about doing that. Um, but, and also, you know, with the internet, there's a sort of latency problem. So if you want to play in time with someone else, 
the internet slightly delays it. Those small increments are really crucial in getting the right feel. So it's at the moment, it's pretty hard to actually play live with someone uh, in, in real time, if you know what I mean. But, you know, we've sent stuff to each other and played along with that, if you know what I mean, and then edited the two together. So it sort of looks like it's real, but it's almost real. You know? how, how difficult was it do, uh, to, re, uh, to do the remix of Everybody Have Fun Tonight? I mean, it looks like, I mean, was there a lot of time involved? It looks like it's just fresh off of MTV of how the MTV days used to be. How difficult <laughs> yeah. was that to do to put together? Of course, I'm talking about Everybody Be Safe Tonight, which everybody please yeah. plug, please go to iTunes and, and, and uh, buy, please, because uh, it's absolutely astounding. I mean, outstanding. Thank you. Um, it was actually, well, it could have been harder. You know, we had sort of, we used some of the original, well, about, I don't know, 10 years ago or so, we re-recorded an exact replica of Everybody Have Fun Tonight, which we partly, we used that live as well, bits of it. And we also sync it out to TV, uh, to TV shows, movies, commercials and stuff like that it sounds exactly the same but it's just a re-recorder we control the master so that was a kind of smart move on our part to to control you know our our old hits um but you know without owning the the master ourselves so we use some of those a lot of those elements for this re-record jack re-sung the lead vocal and sang it really well you know and then through the, I sang my bits, you know, the rip it ups and the choruses and the low voice and everything. And I sort of recorded it on my iPhone and sent it over, emailed him all my vocals, you know. It's, it's amazing, you know, what you can do. Uh, uh, and then Valerie Day from New Shoes, you know, she uh, was up for a collaboration. So she sang her way through this, the song and uh, we used quite a lot of what she did, you know, and, uh, and then, Jack had all the parts in his studio, so he put it all together. All the ingredients are there, he baked the cake, and there it was, you know. Uh, and it sort of turned out really, really well, and people seem to love it, you know. And it's, we're, it's a good message, you know. It was a, I suppose it was a little doodly idea that I had. Um, I was just singing it along on, on a radio. I did a guest DJ slot on uh, Sirius XM. And uh, I just sang it as a little ad lib, you know, and uh, and then Greg Ross of Back to the Basement heard it and thought, hmm, that's a good idea. Why don't you do it properly? So then I suggested to Jack and Jack was like, yeah, OK. And so he got to work and there it was. You know, it's very interesting. You hear a lot of uh, singers who are back in the 80s, 60s, 70s, and their voice just hasn't stood the test of time, not saying anything against their music. But yeah. uh, your guys' music and voices have stood that test of time. And of course, uh, uh, Valerie's was fantastic because, you, you know, you see a lot of these guys who are a little bit older and, and you know, uh, age gets to your voice. Certainly does. Yeah, I mean, we've had to, uh, a couple of the songs, we've had to lower the key of the, the tracks when we do them live these days. Um, but, you know, Jack just nailed it. I mean, he nailed it. He just, I don't know, it just felt... Yeah, all the stars aligned and he just nailed it absolutely. And if a couple of takes, 
you know, he was very, uh, I, and I wasn't there, he did it, you know, at his place. And I was delighted. I thought he was just going to maybe change a few lines, uh, but he just went for the whole thing and it turned out so great. I was delighted and then that inspired me to do all my bits. So yeah, it, yeah, he's, his voice in some ways has changed, but in, in other ways it's great, you know, so I think it's, doing long shows for example I think you have to be careful of, your, of the stamina side of things you have to pace yourself right and take get breaks and breathers in, in the right places but yeah he's great how far do you live from Jack well Jack lives out of town he lives in a place called Canterbury so that's about there's now a really good train links to get there it's about about an hour on the train or so uh, but I have to go across London to get the, the, the train. So it's probably an hour, an hour and a half to get there for me. But, you know, it's all pretty accessible. What it, it, I'm assuming that your relationship with Jack is almost like a marriage or brother and sister type stuff. How, how have you guys been able to maintain your friendship and relationship by being together so long? Well, by taking a lot of time off, you know. <laughs> so we kind of took a long time off, you know, uh, by the end of the 80s, beginning of the 90s, you know, uh, I think we'd probably, maybe our relationship was at, at its least good by the end of the, the begin, end of the 80s. I think we had a, a year or so of kind of not really talking much and we effectively split up, you know. Um, but... And then, you know, we both went off and did different things. You know, I got a band together with John Moss from Culture Club. And, uh, and then I ended up doing other things like in A&R for Warner Brothers and for Sony. I worked on The Voice, the U Voice UK, the TV show. And Jack was doing his stuff with his jazz band and making other bits of music. But uh, so in terms of being a very active sort of everyday working together type sort of unit, you know, we, we stopped doing that. Um, which is not to say that we weren't really good friends. I think we, we had that year of kind of not talking to each other, but soon that our relationship sort of got back on track. And then we collaborated, not directly through Wang Chung, but through other things. Like for example, me working at Warner Brothers or at Sony, you know, I'd bring Jack in to maybe produce some of the acts I was working with or to co-write some stuff with people. To, so we were still, you know, associating creatively, but not as Wang Chung the band. And so, um, but then it was, I suppose, a bit later on in around I don't know, 2010 or something like that or 11 that we started, we got back on the horse much more and we got we would occasionally, well, we'd always be offered tours and gigs and stuff, which I, I turned down because I was doing other things. But uh, Jack did a couple of things. Um, but then we got offered this show called Hit Me Baby One More Time. It's a big, I don't know if you remember it. Yes. On ABC, I think it was. A big, you know, primetime show. And I thought, and I was really getting a bit sort of fed up with doing my A&R by then. And uh, so we, we went off and we did that. Uh, and it was, the response was so strong, so warm, you know. And I think that made us think, 
think there's something there's still something really fun about doing this maybe we should do a new record so that's what we did we we made a new album of new material called taser up and uh and then we got back on the road and and that, that was the whole so it was wang chung you know back on the block so to speak you know yeah you know uh, my first uh, introduction to you guys was in Richmond, Virginia in 1984 when you guys traveled with the cars. All oh, right. Okay. And, and, and I've told the story to Jack too that uh, you guys, Dance Hall Days was the first video I ever saw because we were poorer than dirt at home. But when right. it was Richmond, Virginia with my aunt and uncle, they had MTV and that's uh, Dance Hall Days was the first um, video I watched on MTV. So oh. my, my uncle came and said, uh, hey, do you want to go to a concert? You know, I'm 16 years old. And I said, yeah, what, what is it? He said, the cars. And of course, you know, you guys opened up for him and I actually bought one of your guys' shirts rather than the Heartbeat City shirt from the car. <laughs> my first introduction. But, but, but what's interesting, though, is um, two years later, my senior year in high school, um, uh, now the, uh, the statutes of limitations have probably won't get me prosecuted, but I had an English paper that I needed to do. And you know how you are as a kid. You procrastinate, procrastinate, procrastinate. And I finally looked down and looked at my albums and I saw points on the curve and I pulled out the jacket. Oh, vinyl was great with the jackets and you had, you know, you had the lyrics were on them. So I did uh, uh, a true love and I wrote it down and I submitted it to the teacher and you guys got an A plus, by the way. Oh, I lost. <laughs> That's uh, that's really cool. I love things like that. <laughs> and my, I had to read it. I had to read it in front of the class. And I had to read it to the point where I almost wanted to start saying it because I love points on the curve. Every album on points on the curve. But I, I just thought I'd let you know that. And I, I apologize for uh, taking credit for your work. That's totally fine. And, and that's great. I love, I remember when we were on tour, I think it was with Tina Turner in, in 80, 1987, doing another Norma Dome sort of, type tour and uh i remember someone so, something was sent backstage like this this big envelope with this rather important looking document in, and i opened it up and it was a fan who for their a sort of university kind of uh, uh what's the word um one of the things they had to do for their university degree was to write it was a comparative study of Let's Go by Wang Chung, John Donne's The Ecstasy, John Donne being an Elizabethan poet, you know, right. uh, and uh, what was it? And Higher Love by Stevie Winwood. And it was this incredibly intellectual sort of comparative study of, these, of those three songs. Uh, and uh, I must say, it's, I loved, I, this is incredibly pretentious and most of it was probably like, rubbish really, but I love the thinking behind it and the commitment to that sort of intellectual side of things. So, yeah, if you've got an A plus for true love, that's fine with me. Well, I was going to use waves, but you know, it had make love in there. And I didn't know how uh, appreciative the teacher would have been if I had put some, uh, you know, some niche stuff in there. <laughs> um, tell us, so you were talking about, do you guys still own your publishing rights? So all your music is still your music? Well, we own um, these masters that we, uh, we've done. Um, so we actually, well, we still have an interest in the publishing, but how, we did. How does that work? Um, well, we get a performance royalty and a writer's royalty. Um, we did sell our publishing back catalog 
about, well, how long ago was that? About 10 years ago. I mean, it was, you know, we still, as I say, have a stake in it. Um, so we get an override, we get a percentage, plus we still get our performance royalties, plus we own our, these masters of all our major songs. So all the revenue that they generate, we, we still get, you know, we, well, we own them, so we get the, the majority of that. So our, our sort of royalty income is still pretty healthy. In fact, it's, I'd say it's stronger than ever. It's amazing, you know. Did I see, and am I correct, that you found Adam Ant, Adam and the Ants? So when I, did you want the whole story? Yes, please. So when I, um, when I, how far back shall I go? So I was in this band with John Moss and Pete, and that was how I learned to play, and it was all very, you know, uh, what's the word, uh, creative and stuff. And then it was sort of, we reached that point of, you know, just pre-university. It's like, should I go to university or not, you know? Uh, and as you can imagine, my parents were uh, a bit worried that, it, you know, if I wasn't going to go up that sensible road, you know? And I was clearly plumping for, you know, having these delusions, as far as they were concerned, of success in the music business. Um, and they were really worried about that. And they were like, so they put quite a lot of pressure on me to, to, to take the sensible option and go to university. You know, I was genuinely interested in psychology. I was reading books about Jung and Freud and stuff off my own bat. I was just genuinely interested. So it seemed if I was going to go up this university road, you know, that I would study something like philosophy, uh, uh, psychology. So and that's what I, in the end, I thought, well, I'll do it and see how I feel about it. So I went to university, Liverpool University, um, studied psychology and philosophy. I say studied, but actually <laughs> I found it so disappointing, the course, and that I was more... As, as I always say, I think I studied alcoholology more than psychology. <laughs> and in the end, you know, they, I got thrown out, you know, which was the best thing that ever happened to me because uh, it sort of forced me into what I really wanted to do, which was to be a musician and be in a band. And, you know, I, I'd already sort of split up the band that I'd been in with John Moss and Pete and everything so I could go to university. But when I came back down to, uh, to London, having been thrown out of Liverpool University with my parents deeply worried about me and not talking to me, or I wasn't talking to them, it was all really bad. Uh, and I thought well, I'd better get myself a job, you know, in, hopefully in the music industry, you know. So I managed to lie my way into this job as a, as a booker a junior booker or agent at this small agency called Dick James Music, DJM. Dick James had actually signed the Beatles publishing back in the day. He was a legendary figure in it. Um, but this little agency was a bit rubbish, really. It didn't have very good acts, you know. Um, so it was at that time that punk was just beginning to bubble up, you know, and it was a really interesting scene in London. And I was young and really open-minded and I really it really kind of fired me up so I started to get gigs for you know the frontline bands in this new scene so I was getting bands like The Clash 
concerts for gigs for 10 pounds and I was the Sex Pistols were rehearsing in a little dodgy basement across the road from my, where the little office that I worked in and it was a really I was right in the middle of it all and I used to get gigs for the very first the very beginning the very early Adam and the Ants when they were someone called Jordan was hanging uh, was hanging out with them and helping them out with she had that sort of really spiky hair that so I used to get them gigs and stuff and uh, and the bank called the only ones I, I sort of brought so I brought the only ones in got them signed and by the time that I'd left I'd, I'd created really good relations with Adam and the Ants and the agency so they got signed by by the agency as well by which time I had really had enough of doing all of that and thought this really was about time that I did what I truly wanted to do. Instead of just helping other bands, I wanted to help me and do and follow my own sort of uh, artistic kind of vocation. And that's when I got the band together, put this ad in Melody Maker for a guitar player and found, luckily for me, found Jack, you know. And uh, I think Marco Polo and David Bowie are the only two people I saw play guitar with gloves on. <laughs> That's not an easy thing to do. <laughs> that wasn't why I got them gigs there. Okay. So, so how did how did you master playing your um, your instruments? What what came easier, doing the bass, doing a guitar, doing the keyboards, and and how what kind of practice did you put into um, um, mastering them? Well, I, I was a guitar player first and foremost. That bass came much later. Um, I was completely obsessed with it. I just played it the whole time. Uh, I mean, I remember when I was still living at home, you know, I'd just be sitting on my bed playing the guitar, noodling away, you know, and all hours, you know, I just couldn't stop. You know, it's like it was sort of stuck to me, you know. And I was kind of good, you know, I, was, I developed pretty good technique. Um, and I remember my sister, I used to have to call my sister because her room was next to mine. And I'd go, come in and take the guitar away from me because I just couldn't put it down. <laughs> so she used to have to come in <laughs> and just take the guitar out of my hand so I could go to sleep, you know. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, a lot of, you know, a lot of um, perspiration and just genuine enthusiasm. And I, it was very kind of creative what I was doing, I think, rather than, you know, I wasn't in, I was never in a covers band. I never sort of spent a lot of time learning how to play existing songs. I was just wanted to write new stuff or sort of figure out interesting licks or progressions that I'd listened to and, and just experiment with the kind of chord sequences that appealed to me, you know. So it was, that, that was the sort of, the bass came later. That was when, um, when was it? It was sort of, so we'd been in this band, uh, me and Jack and uh, Darren, uh, Darren Coston, who was on Points on the Curve, uh, and, another, and Lee Gorman on bass, who went on to form uh, Bow Wow Wow, and Glenn Gregory on vocals, uh, he went on to form uh, Heaven 17. So this, we were in this band called 57 Men. And we kind of sounded like 57 men. <laughs> lots of really good ideas, but, and it was lots of 
again, pretty creative, but it was a bit, you know, a bit too much really. It didn't quite work, but um, so Jack and me and Darren sort of seemed to be the creative nucleus of what we were doing. We wanted to simplify the sound, needed a bass player. So it was like, well, do you fancy playing bass? Who, who, who fancies playing bass? Was, okay, I'll play bass. And uh, that was how it all stuck. That was how I moved over to bass. And it was, I really enjoyed it. It was a different, whole different thing. You know. What's the perfect atmosphere to write music? The perfect atmosphere? It's, you know, that obviously you don't want distractions if you can avoid them. But um, having said that, music comes out in all different ways. And it's often, it's not easy to, to sort of predict, you know. So, you know, you can be feeling exhausted and in a bad mood or something. And then you sit down and suddenly something just comes out and it's great. Or you could be feeling all sort of fired up and perfect conditions everything's great and uh, and then you just run into a kind of bit of a brick wall and you know you can work really hard on something trying to shape it into something you really want it to it, put it into a sort of direction you want it to go in but it just won't respond you know it's got a life of its own so it, it's so there's no uh, there's no rules Some, sometimes I'll mess around on the guitar and something will come. Sometimes I'll mess around on the piano. Some, in fact, I seem to be in that, mostly in that mode these days, some messing around on the piano. Or other times I'll just play around with my, got this sort of keyboard with drum patterns in it and different sounds and it, something might just come out of that and I'll just, it'll trigger me into going up a certain road. It can be anything, you know. You know, I, I was chatting with a couple of my friends before uh, um, I let them know that I was doing this interview, and we got into a conversation about if someone would have asked me when I was listening to your guys' music in the 80s, um, what, are, what kind of music do you like? I would have said you guys are rock and roll. Do you, do you have a definition between pop and rock and roll? Well, I mean, these days, pop means something else, doesn't it? Um, I mean... Do I don't care about it, if that's what you're asking. It doesn't bother me what it is. Um, if it feels good and, and uh, it's sort of creatively um, sort of satisfying, then I, I don't really think about categories particularly. Um, possibly in the past, I might have done that occasionally. Um, but I find if you overthink things like that, then it's, um, it can lead you into trouble really creatively. I think you've just got to let it, come out and then you can sort of let it come out and play with it and then maybe shape it a bit later it, once the sort of that creative explosion hopefully has happened do you know what I mean uh, and and not be too sort of over calculating about it that's my that's my experience I mean uh, I tend to I quite like to have a, a lyrical line for example as a start point, but even that I'm being less uh, sort of uh, strict about, you know, so I'm being as trying to be as open as possible these days and let things come from, from wherever they come from. You know, you, know, you, you made a comment of, you know, getting, going to school and um, 
you know, you talked about alcohol. What, once you guys start getting on the path and, 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 you know, your popularity becomes, you know, you know, you, you become more popular. What keeps you from going down the path of a Jimi Hendrix or a, uh, you know, a Jim Morrison, you know, what, is it a gene that you think uh, rock and roll stars have that they were going to be alcoholics or drug addicts from the beginning, even though with the success that they had within music? Or how hard was it to stay away from it? Was it always in your face? I mean, how did you push it away and not have issues or problems? Uh, look, when, when you're on tour, especially, you know, especially when you're a bit younger, you're a you're living in a slightly artificial environment so and people are hopefully you know things are going well enough for you're getting sort of quite high levels of adulation you're you're on the move all the time you're it's almost your job to kind of show off a little bit you know um plus of course you're expressing yourself creatively and um hopefully you know sometimes it becomes a bit of a job but but usually it's the adrenaline levels are pretty high so so when you come off stage you're, you're pretty high you know you're pretty hyped up it takes quite a while to to sort of calm the system down so in that state of uh of of highness you know you're <laughs> maybe there are temptations there are you know maybe you want to keep the high up or you're going to hang out or do all sorts of stuff so i could see how people can get into trouble with it um and of course that compounds every day and then you end up a bit of a mess you know um plus you know you go through all different sorts of psychological i remember back in the 80s that the last tour that we did the one uh, it was on and off. It went on for months and months and months it, uh, across the US and around the world, actually. And I remember the first half of it, I was sort of trying to control things quite a lot and becoming almost quite miserable. You know, I wanted to be back in London, being creative, writing stuff, being in the studio. That's what I was more interested in at that time so in trying to fight at the way things were going i became pretty miserable actually so the first half of those few those six months on the road i would i don't look back with any great deal of affection and i remember sort of reaching this point of like you're gonna have to go with the flow or or just forget it you know what i mean so so i went to the other extreme and became sort of this rock and roll idiot, you know, and was, you know, doing what I felt was what you had to do, you know, uh, and which was actually quite a lot of fun, but I ended up being really, really ill, you know, <laughs> so I paid a big price and I was, I came back from that tour actually really ill. I was ill for nearly a year, you know, uh, so it's it's something I I'll never forget that and and I think uh, as you grow older you kind of learn how to to maybe regulate yourself a bit better to to leave enough open to be to let the those sort of creative juices flow and to let the adrenaline flow but not uh, to be so sort of reckless as to make yourself really ill and 
and, and to become a bit of an asshole. You know? <laughs> How, when you guys would tour and you, you would come out on stage, did you ever have a little stage fright? Did you, was there ever a routine that you would go through before you go out on stage? Or was there things that you would think about once you got on stage or what you focused on? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think it's good to have a little bit of stage fright, but up to a point, you don't want to be paralyzed. Yeah, you don't want to have it so much that you're like a rabbit caught in the headlamps, you know. But a little bit of nerves, I think it's quite a good thing. It's a good motivator. I think the worst thing you can be is complacent. So to walk on stage knowing, knowing that you're, it's going to be a, a cakewalk, you know. I think that doesn't lead to good work, you know. You know, in fact, that that doesn't lead to good work anywhere. Whether you're sitting at home writing a song, or whether you're walking out in front of thousands of people, you know, and expecting them to love you. Um, so, so a little bit of stage fright, yes. And some gigs, I had a lot of stage fright, you know. And I I remember uh, like doing some TV shows. I remember we played uh, we played some huge shows, you know. You you were just talking about you know, American Bandstand, I think, and we did, uh, what, what, we did, uh, remember playing Joan Rivers' show, I think it was, you know, and she, we were going to play live on the show and then be interviewed. And, you know, I was, get, I was getting really nervous about that. And I remember we were in the green room and there's all sorts of, you know, people like Charlton Heston and some, some huge stars sort of hanging around with us in the backstage. And I remember drinking a bit of whiskey just to give myself. And then I suddenly I had to go to the loo and I realized, fucking, can I swear? You're good. I thought, Jesus, I am completely out of my head. You know, I was completely drunk. I didn't realize. And I thought, how the hell am I going to get through this? And I was really nervous about the talking bit afterwards. And Jack was really nervous about the vocal bit, singing the song, and especially the middle eight of everybody have fun tonight which is really high he was worried he was gonna mess that up on live tv in front of millions of people well we we got through it fine you know i suppose i don't know if you can find it anywhere but you know i i remember we played the song and i forgot to un to take my bass off and unplug it as we walked over to the chairs to be interviewed and Jerry. It, I was just about, the, 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 my league was just about to get so tight that the whole amp would have fallen over. And Joan River just rushed out and stopped, saved me, you know. This is all on camera, you know. And uh, so that's how I wasn't quite myself, sort of, shall we say. And, um, and I was a bit nervous. So a little anecdote for him. Well, what's it like, what, as a rock star, how or does somebody else choose your clothing or uh, jewelry accessories, your, your hair? How how all is that? I mean, is is it all uh, ego or is it all some? Does someone help you or do you walk through a store and go, man, I think I'm going to wear that jacket uh, on tomorrow night's show? Well, you know, the, of course, especially in the eighties, you know, not now, but in the eighties, that we went through various phases of. Um, you know, people uh, having to work with stylists, you know, and that you can see in some instances that seriously went wrong, you know. 
you know, you're supposed to be dealing with uh, some expert who knows how it's supposed to look and how it's all going to be great. And you end up just looking like a complete idiot, you know. And uh, there's a f quite a few, unfortunately, more than enough examples of us not looking great. But uh, I think over the years, we kind of figured that one out and got on top of it. So we would do what we wanted to do. But as I say, there's plenty of disasters uh, for everyone still to see, unfortunately. You can't do anything about that. But, but these days, no, no, I would never have anyone do that for me. What was the video making process like? Was it a pain in the butt? Was it fun to do? And also, did you get kind of a kick seeing yourself on a video? Was that, that that's got to be pretty neat. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, we obviously were trying to do something a bit more, you know, MTV, we were very lucky, you know, that, that wave was coming in. Uh, and it particularly favoured uh, sort of bands from the UK who were trying to do something a bit more in interesting than I think the American bands in the early days of MTV. So we would uh, be more ambitious to do something a bit more um, maybe eccentric or quirky or something a bit different. Um, on the other hand, uh, you know, it was, we were still very much reliant on the, the director's vision of it, of, you know, they, they would have the idea, generally speaking. So sometimes we'd kind of end up with doing something really good and sometimes we wouldn't, you know. Uh, the actual process was, I, I found actually quite, at times quite boring, you know, because there's a hell of a lot of hanging around for, for the shot to get set up and you're not as in control as you would be, you know, if you're making your own record. It, it, we knew working with music, we, we, we knew the tools, we knew what we wanted, we, we, we were much more hands-on. With video, especially at that time, um, I think we were much more dependent on the, the, the kind of the genius that was directing us, you know. Um, so, a kind of mixed feelings really, but yes, it's exciting the fact that there'd be a whole production around something that we'd written that had started off in our little front room somewhere as a musical idea and end up in this on this set in, in Los Angeles or something, you know, so that was kind of cool. Um, but I, I think the other thing for me was that because Jack did more of the, you know, the, the lead vocals, so inevitably he'd be the busier of the two of us doing the videos, do you know what I mean? Making the, uh, shooting all the, the shots. So <laughs> I'd be hanging around even more, you know, and, and we'd always have really early calls, you know, like always be five or six a.m. for the first call. And then sometimes I'd be waiting, you know, a long time before my first actual, before I was actually needed. And, that, and after a while I learned that that was not something I was particularly happy about. And it, I just used to say, look, when you really need me, please don't ask me to get there at 6 a.m. But I do remember, I think the last straw was when we did the Don't Be My Enemy video. And, you know, I had the usual 6 a.m. call. By the time I was actually required for my first shot, was more like sort of, you know, after about eight hours of, of hanging around. That's, that's what I remember. So eight hours of hanging around, having got up really early. I was wearing this white suit, you know, and uh, waiting for eight hours, white suit, looking really kind of good, made up, you know, everything was perfect. 
And then it was like, okay, Nick, you're on. You know, so I had this cup of tea and I, and I, I put the tea down to, to do my first shot. And there was some bizarre kind of gravitational anomaly happened. As I put the, the cup down, all the tea came up out of the cup and covered my white suit. Just as I was about to, after eight hours of waiting. So, so then we had another hour of sort of hair dryers and all sorts of uh, expert fixing it. But, um, so that was probably the last time I agreed to come unnecessarily early, you know. But overall, yeah, of course, it was lovely to see um, our music, you know, playing on MTV and stuff, you know. What were the pros and cons, or what are the pros and cons of uh, your interactions with your fans? Um, actually, most, and very, very largely pros, you know. Um, I think these days it's much more, it's much easier to get a sense of what they think about things, which, which is lovely, you know, for us, because I think back in the day, there wasn't the internet, there, there wasn't Facebook, there wasn't Zoom, there wasn't, so it would be, people would have to write letters or it was, there were lots of gatekeepers protecting us, you know, from, uh, and security people at the shows. It was much more difficult to get a real uh, direct sort of feedback from the audience. I mean, yes, of course there were people, but, but these days uh, it's lovely. Um, a, because we're a bit older, and so you really appreciate the fact that people still, you know, it, it means something to people, that your music, you know, that's a, it's a really lovely feeling. I feel very privileged and honoured that, you know, that when people tell us, you know, what it means to them, I, they'll associate our music with experiences they had when the, they were younger, or, or maybe their kids like it now, or when they saw a movie, they didn't realize that was this. And it, it's, uh, it's, it's a lovely thing, you know. Um, and I think the internet and the way we gig these days and we'll meet the audience and those that want to come and, you know, buy merch of us or get signed or just, you know, have their pictures taken or whatever they want, you know. Um, and they'll tell us what, what they feel. It's so 99% lovely and especially after all these years to know that it still means something to them it's lovely for us do you still enjoy touring love it i think you know i told you that story about you know how the last big tour we did in the 80s was uh the first half of it i was really quite miserable and then the second half i sort of went to the other extreme um, I think now I, I love it much more than I used to. Um, I think I'm much more in touch with who I am, you know. I mean that in a, as a person, you know, I don't mean, hey, I'm Nick from Wang Chung. You know, and, you know, I, we try and do a good show. We, we, we take it seriously, but we also, I think when you're a bit older, maybe you can know how to have fun, you know, with it as well. You're, you're confident enough to maybe a bit, be a bit looser almost, you know, in a good way. So, plus all the interaction with, with the fans and the feedback. I, I'd absolutely love it. Uh, and I've really missed, missed it this year, not being able to, well, these last few months we, we had, we did manage to do a few gigs in at the beginning of the year, 
but obviously the, the, the pandemic has stopped everything else since. But um, so I, I miss that. But we'll, we'll be back on the horse. We'll get back on the horse and we'll do it again, hopefully. Who in your career um, have you enjoyed meeting because of the success that you've had in music? Um, uh, or you wouldn't have met if you would not have been a musician. But you're like, wow. Do you have wow moments of some people that you have met? Besides of how successful uh, you and Jack have been with Wang Chung. But do you have wow moments in your career? Well, plenty of those, yeah. Um, because, you know, I still... You, you, Obviously, we, to some people, we mean we're quite sort of, uh, you know, we mean quite a lot to some people, but we're still, I just think I'm just little old me, you know, and I'm, I very much have wow moments. I can give you three examples and there's loads more. So okay. I think the first one was when we recorded Dance, maybe you've heard this story, but when we recorded Dance Hall Days at, uh, at Abbey Road Studios, back in the in, in 1983 so you know jack and i are massive beatles fans and still are so to, just to be at abbey road studios alone was amazing for us and it was in the days before it was all refurbished so it still had that old sort of feel to the place which for us was brilliant uh, and the desk was still very old-fashioned desk with great big knobs and up and over faders and things. So to be recording on equipment like that in Studio Two, that big famous room, you know, with the tiles falling off the walls, it was all a bit grubby and just perfect, you know, for us. And you know, we were recording, we recorded Dance All Days and the whole Points on the Curve album. But Dance All Days was clearly going to be the big single. And uh, the bass just wasn't sounding quite right on the recording. And I'm left-handed bass player, you know. And so the engineer goes, oh, hang on, I, I'm gonna, I've got an idea. I'm going to get another instrument for you, see if we can, that'll sound any better. So he disappears. About 15 minutes later, this guy walks in holding a left-handed Yamaha bass. And he goes, I'm from the bass hire company. And uh, we looked at him, it was like, it was Paul McCartney <laughs> with his bass. And uh, so basically he lent me his bass to play on Dance All Day. That's the bass that, you know, you hear on, on Dance All Days. And uh, it's just one of those moments. I, I, we were literally kind of speechless, you know, because... We, he's an absolute hero. You know, I told you we loved the beat. Uh, so that was an amazing experience. Uh, what else? I mean, there's... Few, well, William Freakin, the director, the film director who directed, uh, you know, French Connection and um, The Exorcist. And, you know, we were a, a, an amazing man, you know. And he approached Wang Chung to do the score for To Live and Die in L.A. I, out the blue, you know, and uh, it was a wonderful, and still is. We 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 met him again. We we meet him regularly. You know, he's been a wonderful friend. Um, and we did a we saw him a few months ago in London. There was it was the we did this Q and A at uh, the famous cinema with William Freakin and us, uh, with uh, 
you know, about to live and die in LA. It was wonderful. So yeah, I'm, I'm always, I always feel a bit kind of in awe of him. Uh, he does some, he's done some amazing stuff. And then, well, and then the other hero that I have is Frank Zappa. Well, Frank Zappa, uh, his keyboard player was, was Peter Wolf. You know, uh, Peter Wolf produced, but the reason we got Peter Wolf to, to work with us on, uh, on the Mosaic album was because, partly because of his history with, as being, of being in Frank Zappa's band. That to me was like an amazing credential. And um, I, I actually got invited over to have a jam, but Gail Zapper invited me over to um, to jam with, with Frank Zapper, and I, and I wimped out of it. I was so in awe that I wimped out and I didn't go. Can you believe it? You know, it's interesting. I tried to do Six Degrees of Separation on all my shows, and uh, William Friedkin also did the movie Blue Chips, which is a basketball movie. So right. we've got the basketball connection right there. So that's, <laughs> you know, what's funny, what's funny today was uh, my wife asked me who I was having on uh, a couple, about six months ago, we were driving the car and I was listening to uh, uh, look at me now off of points on her and uh, she's a little bit older than I. So she said, uh, she said, that may be the dumbest song I've ever heard in my life. So today <laughs> she asked me today, she says, so who are you interviewing? I said, Nick Feldman, uh, uh, the other part of Wang Chung. And, She's like, oh, okay, it's cool. And so I heard her in the kitchen humming dance hall days. So I just wanted to tell you that I don't know if it's something that I've got that I can work her to, to come over to my side, but she was humming dance hall days while making, uh, preparing dinner for this evening. It's about time. <laughs> so, now so, so <laughs> Nick, where, where, uh, wangchung.com, right? Yeah. People can get t-shirts and get everything and also uh, you can get that we're on Facebook as well Wang Chung the band Wang Chung band or always forget what it is and there's for some reason we've got a friends page as well so but yeah so we're 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 everywhere yeah what does Nick Feldman do what 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 is the life of a rock star today what 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 take us through a, a, a daily Nick Feldman day wow I mean it it varies really uh you know we We'll have sort of periods of intense activity with Wang Chung, for example, like we've just done this back to the basement thing, you know, we, and we, uh, you know, uh, the online virtual concert. We did days and days and days of interviews and promo for that. Um, we re-recorded everybody have fun tonight, to everybody stay safe tonight. We did the video to it, you know, we... We also did some sort of acoustic stuff, me and Jack and Ed headed that all together. That was all very intensive Wang Chungery, you know, uh, over a few weeks uh, of work, you know. But then other days it'll be uh, quite, you know, fairly quite domestic stuff or incredibly boring stuff like getting my taxes sorted out and my accounts, which I hate doing, but I seem to be doing that all the time, which drives me mad. Uh, and then I'll sort of drift into my, into this room I'm in now, which is our front room. There's a, there's a piano here, so I'll mess around on that. Sometimes for hours, sometimes not, depending how things are going. Um, hang out with the, with the kids. I mean, obviously, you know, we go for a walk, you know, or ride a bike, try and keep 
fit, trying to avoid catching this horrible virus, that kind of stuff, you know. Uh, go shopping, you know, stuff everyone does, you know. Uh, I've, to be honest, I've sort of quite enjoyed the relative peace and quiet of this, of the lockdown we've had. I mean, I don't, obviously, it's a tragedy what's happened and so many people have passed on and it's just appalling. So I'm not being, I'm not trying to be stupid about it. But, but my sort of the day-to-day -day life has been rather pleasantly sort of quiet, yeah. And, and I found that rather creative, actually, to be honest. And it's opened up, I feel I've got some really good stuff as a result of it, music stuff, you know. So... So overall, good, you know, but we're coming out of lockdown now, so I don't know, it's a bit, making me a bit nervous, so I don't know how to feel about it. Nick Feldman, I ran long on the show. I appreciate your time. I appreciate you answering my questions. This is going to be very enjoyable for those who watch and listen. I'm going to, this will be a video and also will be an audio podcast also. But I cool. thank you so much for your time, guys. You have to, everyone, be safe tonight. Go to iTunes, buy it today. You can also watch the video on YouTube. But Nick Feldman of Wang Chung, thank you so much. I appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Good to talk to you.